everything that happens has a context. Everything that occurs has a context. In fact, if you look at most of our news today, you'll hear a lot of uh, discussion about things and reports and how they uh, tell us about what's happening in the world. And uh, a lot of people will say, well, you're taking that out of context. And the reason we say that is because context is really important for understanding something. And Good Friday is no different. You might expect that Good Friday is a time for us to reflect on suffering to internalize what it means that Jesus suffered, to imagine what Jesus went through physically and emotionally as he died for sin, and you would not be wrong. Uh, This is a time for us to do those things. Good Friday is certainly for us to recognize kind of the solemn moment of Jesus' death, but that death has a context, Right? And grasping that context makes all of the difference for us. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the context. And to do that, I want to introduce to you uh, the idea of shalom. We've talked about shalom before. Uh, here we go. Shalom. Wholeness and peace flowing from the right ordering of things. Shalom is a really good thing in Scripture. Shalom is how we recognize uh, goodness. When things are functioning as they ought to function, that is shalom. So as we talk about the context that uh, Jesus' death happens, and I just kind of want to build this context for us, you have God, Father, Son, and Spirit existing before creation. And the picture that you actually get as you read Scripture and you understand the kind of relationship that Father, Son, and Spirit had with each other, the picture that we're given is a picture of shalom, a picture of wholeness, of unity, of peace that is flowing, of things being rightly ordered as Father, Son, and Spirit are in relationship with each other. And out of his perfection, he created the world in shalom he created the world uh, this place that was supposed to exist as an overflow of his wholeness and the peace and the unity and the right ordering of things that existed the world was created for shalom now as i have described the concept of shalom to you you might be going well but that's not our world today Right? That's not how things function. I don't actually uh, use that, those kinds of words to describe the way that the world functions today. So what happened? Well, God, uh, he intended us to be his partners in shalom. Right? He actually made human beings, and uh, for every piece of creation that he made, he said uh, it was good. Right? So he made something, he said it is good, and then he made something else, and he said it is good. But then he made human beings... And he said, it is very good, right? It is very good that that he created these partners to kind of work together with him in extending shalom and administrating shalom in the place that he created. And and the idea that he, he kind of approaches his creation and he says to us, work together with me for in like caring for creation and expanding shalom and so the idea is that the purpose that we're given in creation it flows out of us having a right relationship with him and God set clear boundaries about about what a right relationship with him would look like and and essentially what happened was we told God um, we don't need you 
or your boundaries, right? We prefer to do things our way. In fact, God, you know what? I think we know how to do shalom better than you do. That's essentially what we said. We disregarded God. We rebelled against him. And remember, his intention was that we would kind of extend shalom in relationship with him. But we betrayed him, right? And so that, that took place. And so from that moment, what happened was that shalom descended into brokenness, right? Things started to fall apart. You see things in the world happening like oppression and war and disease and people stealing from each other and death. All of these things are taking place in the world and what was made to be peaceful suddenly becomes chaotic. Things start falling apart, right? So the amazing thing is God was not content to leave the situation like that, right? He was not content to leave us there. So what he did is that he put together a plan, right? The, the Bible actually calls this plan, uh, the word it uses for this plan, it calls it a mystery, right? So as uh, the Old Testament was talking about this plan that God is developing, it, there was kind of this mystery to it, but he included pieces of this plan in writings to a people that he called his own people and he sent prophets to that people to speak of pieces of his plan and he gave promises regarding his plan to his people Israel and he kept uh, kind of leaving breadcrumbs and leaving trails and putting together pieces of this plan throughout history kind of working with the people of Israel he left clues and signposts about what his plan was going to be to take us out of this situation. And the plan involves sending someone called Messiah, Christ, to carry out his plan. So what would God do? Well, God would send his son from wholeness into brokenness. And these are the promises that he would bring. He would bring shalom, peace, healing, wholeness, righteousness, justice. God's son would descend into the brokenness to set things right. That's what the scriptures tell us. And that is the context of Good Friday. On Good Friday, we see God's son, Jesus, having descended to the depths of brokenness in accordance with God's plan. That's what God set out from the very beginning. And so, Take a look at John 19, verse 16 with me. That's the context that we find ourselves in here. The author, John, he's writing to us about Jesus' crucifixion, his execution. And John is taking great strides to show us, the reader, something about the last three hours of Jesus' life. And that thing that John is trying to show us is this. Jesus was meticulous through suffering to execute every detail of God's plan. Jesus knew that God had formulated this plan from the very beginning, and so he was meticulous to make sure every single detail of this plan was taken care of. He deeply wanted to make sure that shalom was extended, right? That wholeness that we lack could actually be given to us. He desperately wanted us to find a way to be healed. He cared so deeply about saving us from the brokenness that we each actually have a part in creating, right? That even while he was suffering and actually intensely, actively dying, he was making sure that every last detail of the plan that God had set out was being fulfilled. And John 19 conveys to us just how he did that. 
So John 19, 16, this is what it says. It says, so they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between him. So for what it's worth, every single piece of the story that John tells to us here, it references God's plan, the things that he had set out in prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures for healing and forgiveness and restoration and renewal. And so this here, when John tells us these details, he's saying Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Jesus was checking off boxes of God's plan. And so when it says that he bore his own cross and that he was uh, numbered with other people, other thieves who were on either side of him, right, he was crucified alongside them, those are details that tell us that Jesus in this moment was regarded as a criminal, He was being recognized as a criminal. He was suffering what thieves and murderers suffered, even though he broke no law. Right? So so John expected that his readers would have familiarity with the Hebrew Scriptures, and this detail was meant to draw our attention to a prophecy about a servant who would suffer to bring healing to us. Isaiah 53.12 says, Numbered among the transgressors, this one who would come to save us. He would be considered to be as a lawbreaker. Now this is one among many pieces that display this reality because God's plan, while it was to bring peace and wholeness and restoration and healing, at the same time God's plan details to us things about how an individual would begin to bear the weight of suffering and how an individual would become the the focus of the brokenness. So, the plan. The plan was not only for the son to to descend into the brokenness, right? The plan was not only for the son to descend into the brokenness, but for the son to allow the brokenness to close in on him. For it to, like aim and make him the object of the suffering that it was trying to execute on the whole world. The brokenness kept bringing in. And so for God to bring wholeness or shalom, a servant, this is what God's plan laid out, that a servant would be made to look like a criminal and suffer like a criminal while the whole world turned against him, while it sought to suffocate him. So verse 19, it says, Pilate also wrote an inscription. And put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So it it was customary for those who were crucified to have the charges for which they were being crucified placed above their head. The charge against Jesus is sedition. He claimed to be king. So what you have is a Roman governor writing an official proclamation, because that's what these charges that were placed above criminals' heads were. They were official proclamations. That Jesus is king of the Jews. And here we see another detail of God's plan being carried out. Psalm 96, verse 1. It is a call to the nations. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. 
It's telling, not just Jews, not just God's special people, it's telling every person, every kind of person in all of the earth to sing to the Lord a new song. And that song has a lot of content. Psalm 96 details the kind of song that people ought to be singing. But one of the things that they're called to sing is this. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Kings reign. That's what they do. Kings reign. So what this is saying is, say among the nations that the Lord is king. Tell the nations that the Lord is king. So this call is a call to all people to make known the kingship of the Lord among all the nations. The nations each have their own king, but their call is to recognize a new king and kingdom, God's kingdom. And what does John record for us? That Pilate, a high-ranking Roman official, has recorded above Jesus' head that the Son of God is king. He's king of the Jews. And not only has he done that, but he has done it in three different languages. So that Everybody in the area who walks by Jesus can understand in their own language when they look up on that cross that Jesus is king. Right, so, so take notes what's, what's happening with me because there are kind of two things happening at the same time. There are two kinds of prophecies being brought to light. The first kind of prophecy that we talked about, prophecies regarding suffering of an individual, right? This was, uh, he was numbered among the transgressors, right? The world turned against him. Even though he had done nothing, he was numbered among the transgressors, right? Prophecies regarding the suffering that an individual uh, would, would face as a broken world closes in on him. But then you have juxtaposed against that prophecies about hope and healing and restoration and a right relationship with God. And so this piece of God's plan is highlighting that the world is broken. You know, every nation has its own king and uh, every nation has its own government and those governments are broken, those kings are self-interested. But God is giving a call into a new kind of kingdom. So you have juxtaposed against suffering a promise that God's plan is an invitation into a new kingdom. God is extending this plan that he's been writing all along is an invitation into a new kingdom. Okay, so another piece of God's plan. So far, Jesus has checked off two pieces of God's plan while he is suffering. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And John tells us, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This uh, quotation, this plan that was laid out, it comes from Psalm chapter 22. If you read the rest of Psalm chapter 22, you would find it written from the perspective of a person who is describing the experience of what it is like for the entire world to turn against him. Right? He, 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 he has had every part of his world turn against him. It conveys the idea of a person who senses that the walls are closing in on them, that, that hatred and evil are ever at his doorstep as people mock him and berate him. That's what Psalm 22 is about. He's saying, God, these people are coming against me. And this casting lots for the clothing, this is a piece of that. that they, they gambled, too, to see who could own the very shirt from my back. That was the extent to which the world turned against me. 
And again, this is another piece of God's plan where the son is allowing the brokenness to close in on him. So verse 25. The soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So here, while he is suffering, Jesus is meticulous to carry out the plan that God had. Right, so so this, this kind of passage here, what happens when Jesus hands his mother over to John, uh, who is the disciple that Jesus loved, right? Uh, when, when Jesus hands his mother over to John and says, here, that's your son now, and son, here is your mother, this would have been confounding to a Jewish person. It wouldn't have made any sense to them. And the reason it wouldn't have made sense to them is because Jesus had three other brothers. He had, he had, there were three other people who could have taken care of Mary. Right? That, that, why does Jesus make the effort here to say, no, actually, John, you're her son, and Mary, you're his mother. Why wouldn't he just entrust his brothers to take care of her? Well, Isaiah 43 a prophecy about things that would happen when Messiah comes. It speaks of a new family that God is going to make for himself. And so specifically, I just want you to hear these verses, Isaiah 43, verses 5 and 6. It says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from, a, from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. The idea that's being set forth here is that God is gathering for himself a new people from all of the earth, right? He's creating a new family for himself. He's forging a new family that is made up from people from every family in the earth. So with John and Mary, he makes the point to say to them, you are each other's family now. The bond that you now have transcends blood. Mother here is your son. Son, here is your mother. You are a part of a new spiritual family that God is making. And so John took her in, cared for her like his own mother, and here, once again, you see a prophecy of hope set alongside prophecies of suffering. And so another piece of God's plan, extending hopeful invitations, God's plan is an invitation into, that should say, a new family. God's plan is an invitation into a new family. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, John tells us, I thirst. So verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This comes from uh, Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. It says, they gave me poison for food and sour wine to drink. And you know, Psalm 69 is another psalm that represents an individual who senses his enemies gathering all around him, who experiences evil closing in on him from every side. And here he says, they gave me poison for food and sour wine 
to drink. And we get the overwhelming sense that at every step, that the intensity of the brokenness keeps increasing as it focuses in on Jesus. As it actually puts Jesus in the crosshairs and then carries out his execution. So then verse 30, it says this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those words, it is finished, speak of something that was once incomplete, now coming to completion. Right? Jesus said, essentially, when he said these words, I have carried out every last detail of the plan, at least of my part of the plan, that I can carry out. My part is taken care of. And notice that even at the end, his life is not taken from him. He gives it up, right? He gives it up here as he notes the completion of his part of the plan. And what's interesting, as even he says it is finished, there are yet other parts of the plan that are still being fulfilled after he gives up his spirit. So verse, uh, verses 31 through 36 get, kind of get at this day, that uh, this idea that... Uh, they didn't want the, the soldiers didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross for Sabbath. And so the, the Jews asked Pilate um, that, that the legs of the people hanging there, that they might be broken because if they break their legs, uh, their, their legs aren't able to uphold their weight anymore and their arms are stretched out. So when your arms are stretched out and your legs can't hold you up, what it's doing is it's pulling your rib cage down and it's actually suffocating you, actively suffocating you. That's why they broke their legs, so that they would die faster. And so the soldiers said, well, let's go out and break their legs. And so they, they broke the legs of the other two, but then when they came to Jesus, he saw he was, they saw that he was already dead, and so they didn't break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe. And then, then John again draws our attention to God's plan. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So here John, what he's doing, he is noting for us the fulfilling of two scriptures. The first is in reference to the Passover lamb. And in the book of Exodus, when the Passover lamb was uh, to, to be given as sacrifice, it was to be an unblemished lamb, which means for a lamb to be unblemished, you could not break any of its bones, right? So, so when it's presented for sacrifice, that was just a part of the process. And so that Jesus' bones weren't broken was to make note of his role as our Passover lamb, as the Passover sacrifice. And what they would do is they would take the blood of that unbroken lamb and they would put it over their doorposts, right, to remind them of the time when the angel of death passed over in front of their doors and they all thought the lamb died so that I don't have to die. Right? That was what they were reminded of. So the second, the second scripture is from the prophet Zechariah, the second piece of God's plan that is fulfilled here. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10 says this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace 
and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then in a few verses later, in verse 13, one, it says this. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This piece of God's plan that John is drawing our attention to here, it's an invitation into forgiveness. God's plan is an invitation into forgiveness. You see what John is doing? He's he's showing us each step of the way that everything that Jesus did, it checked the box. It ensured that God's plan could be taken care of so that these promises that he was just waiting to extend to welcome broken people into his family, that he would be able to extend them. And so God's plan is an invitation into forgiveness. Jesus is buried after that. In the next verses, we read uh, about a man named Joseph of Arimathea who offers to bury the body of Jesus. And we read about his 75 pounds of spices and perfumes that he brings to anoint Jesus' body. And these details tell us that Joseph Joseph of Arimathea is a very wealthy man. Verse 41 says this. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Joseph, Pharimathea is a rich man, and what he did is he used his tomb for God's purposes, right? If you're a rich man, your tomb is for you. Your tomb is a very special thing. It takes a long time to be able to acquire a tomb that is carved out of a a rock that is set aside, especially for someone. But he says, you know what? I know this is for me. I know, uh, and for what it's worth, 75 pounds of spices and perfume. This is like years and years wages that we're talking about here. He's taking all of this that would have been met for his own death, and he's using it for Jesus's death. He's actually allowing God to repurpose the things that were supposed to belong to him and use them for Jesus, right? And this actually is another fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah 53, it says that they made his tomb with a rich man, right? And so here, Joseph is compelled by what he saw in Jesus to give up his newly made tomb so that Jesus can go there, well, Jesus' body can be at rest there because it was important to him that somebody honored Jesus after he died. He could have used himself, he could have saved it for himself, but he decided to use it for Jesus. And so with this prophecy, we see the final invitation of God's plan. That God's plan is an invitation into new purpose. So what was God's plan? God's plan was to send his son to suffer under the full weight of this world's evil, and brokenness, and through that suffering to extend an invitation, an invitation into forgiveness for how you've contributed to the brokenness, an invitation into a new kingdom with a king who loves by giving up his life, an invitation into a new purpose to let all you are be used for him, an invitation into a new family where you are loved by your creator and given new brothers and sisters, given a family that knows how to love you well. 
an invitation into shalom and wholeness that he is actively bringing into the world. That's what God's plan was doing. While he suffered, he was extending God's invitation. And so my question to you is this. What will you do with the invitation? For what it's worth, he doesn't stay dead, right? Because, you know, anybody could offer invitations, right? But he proves that he is actually able to extend the invitation because three days later, he rises from the dead. So if you're a believer in Jesus... The invitation for you is an invitation to faithfulness and worship. And maybe it's an invitation for you to consider a next step of faithfulness that Jesus is calling you to take. Just for what it's worth, as you watch how he fulfilled every piece of God's plan, he's worthy of whatever next step he's calling you to. If you are not a believer in Jesus here in this room with us tonight, the invitation to you is to accept the invitation that he's extending Right By turning to him as your king and receiving the benefits that he has to offer. So whether you've crossed the line of faith or not, this is what we're going to do. In a moment, we're going to be singing and reading scripture together. And if you sense that God is stirring your heart, as you recognize the invitations that Jesus is giving you, if you sense that you need to take a next step as a believer, or if you sense you've never trusted in Jesus and you want to take that initial step of faith, there's going to be an opportunity for you to respond. There's an, there, there are several ways that all of us can respond. So one is that you can respond to the invitation that God is giving to you, like in prayer, right there where you sit. That is open to you. But what we've done this evening is that along the back wall of the sanctuary, there are kind of four different stations there. And I've asked somebody to be at one of those stations to be prepared to pray with people. Right, and so maybe you're here and you're ready to cross the line of faith in Jesus or you're considering crossing the line of faith in Jesus. You sense that God is stirring something inside of you and you need to pray with somebody. In a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to go and have somebody pray with you. Or if you're here and you sense that you need to take a next step of faithfulness or you just simply need prayer for something, then you, I would encourage you go and receive prayer. Go find someone at the back, and then while we're singing together and reading scripture, you'll have an opportunity to do that. Ask them to pray for you. Let them know whatever it is that you sense God is doing. And then right now, as we prepare for some time in worship, I'm going to pray and ask God to lead us in this time. So we're going to have a little bit of time to reflect. We're going to sing some songs. As we sing those songs, um, I just invite you to, to sit, right? To um, just be reflective in the moment. And you can sing with us too, absolutely. But be reflective in the moment. We're gonna have some people come up and read scripture. But if you sense that it's your time to respond, I'd encourage you to go back and find somebody in the back of the room who would be willing to pray for you. So with all of that being said, church, would you pray with me, please? God, we started this evening saying that we are here to meet with you. And Jesus endured great suffering to show us just how willing you are to meet with us. So God, I pray that you would make us open to what it is that you are doing in this moment. Father, I, I pray that, um, 
you would help us to appreciate and reflect on the enormous accomplishments that took place because Jesus died for our sakes. This evening as we hear scripture read, as we sing songs, as we proclaim the gospel through the reading of the word, through, uh, through, through the singing and everything that there is going on here, Lord, I pray that you would just well up our hearts with gratefulness and wonder at what you've done for us. That we might be amazed at the works that you have accomplished in fulfilling every single piece of the plan that was laid out. Lord Jesus, we trust you with this time to come and meet us in the midst of whatever circumstance we find ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.